Hi, I'm Maeve Marsden and you're listening to Queer Stories, the podcast for the LGBTQI plus storytelling night I host and program. If you're new to Queer Stories, welcome. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Head out to your local bookseller to buy the Queer Stories book and enjoy listening to this incredible archive of stories by LGBTQI plus Australians. Teresa Avila is co-founder of the Red Rattler Theatre and was founding chair and treasurer for 10 years before stepping down last year. She has worked in engineering and heavy construction for over 20 years and is one of the industry's few operational-facing senior women. She is a recreational pilot and served on the board of directors of Recreational Aviation Australia and in 2013 she founded Avila Aviation. Um, I just want to say firstly that I've had 10 minutes sleep for a reason I'll explain at the end of the, um, the story, but here we go. It's 1989. I'm 15 years old and it's my first day at Goulburn High Public School. I stand out because I'm the Catholic girl from the all-girl private school in Wollongong and I'm the WOG kid. I'm anxious about being at a co-ed high school for the first time and having moved away from home to be there. And now I actually miss wearing my old pinstripe tunic, the collared shirt, tie, blazer, shiny black shoes, which in retrospect provided a kind of dandy androgynous look that I enjoy today. <laughs> the nuns at St Mary's College were quite progressive in teaching technical drawing classes but were unable to offer the next step for me, which was engineering science. That's what I had become passionate about. I'm the only girl now in the class, one of the boys in some ways, but just bullied in all the other ways. I finished my HSC though and got into the mechanical engineering degree at Wollongong Uni. I was the youngest in my year and 17 years old. For the next four years, I juggled back-to-back exams, six subjects a session, unibar, sexuality, love, queer dating, lovers, parties, identity, and growing up. It's amazing in a lot of ways I actually graduated. <laughs> so, for my first summer session, I worked in an underground coal mine, don't judge me, <laughs> proudly wearing my hard jacket pants and shirt, safety helmet with a mine light, tool harness, safety boots, covered in heavy coal dust. Going to the toilet involved walking down pitch black, very long and dark underground corridors that were carved out of the coal face. The toilet, if you could find it, was a rusty metal can. I was asked to tell the mine manager when I was going there for my own safety in case one of the miners tried to follow me. I was the only woman in the uh, the underground coal mine. In fact, I was the first woman to actually work in that mine. Shifts were 14 hours long and I learned to just not go to the toilet. And I still have amazing bladder control for that reason. In 1996, now 21 years old, I graduated as one of only two women in the entire graduating graduating class, and I think the only queer. I knew well already any of my successes would be dismissed as positive discrimination. For the next 20 or 25 years, I've worked my way up the slippery ladder of the male-dominated heavy construction industry. It's a misogynist, racist, sexist, transphobic, homophobic industry. And although I'm referred to in queer life as Mr. T, or Daddy, I am seen as very female and seen as very she at work. In queer personal life, I'm usually misperceived as masculine or he. My pronoun is she, by the way. After uni, I was living in Newcastle working full time. One night, I walked into the local queer club, an old venue called the Lucky Country. As I looked up, I saw true love. We fell in love instantly. Our eyes locked across a crowded room and we started an epic romance together. We grew together. We built our careers side by side. We built a home. We collaborated on creative projects and made epic things happen together. We gave birth. 
as co-curators and co-founders to the Red Rattler Theatre. We were that smug, happy, fiercely independent, long-term power couple. <laughs> when we separated after 11 years together, our friends and family cried. When we separated, we had to confront life choices, missed opportunities, heartbreak, and division of assets. We would joke we were only babies ourselves, but I had only just started to imagine queer family through adoption or that my soulmate would be pregnant and carrying our baby. And we are now, by the way, a long-term power of friendship and she is part of my queer family. After the breakup, I fell in love with recreational flying. <laughs> um, I love talking about flying. It's an inherent part of who I am and also pilots love telling people how awesome we think we are and we actually do think we're very awesome. <laughs> I've had so many adventures flying above the clouds at altitude, looking down at glistening lakes and tree-lined rivers, picturesque misty haze through the Blue Mountains, cutting above the Great Western Ranges, turning east towards the coastline and seeing a vast blue expanse over the escarpment. It's very romantic. Life literally changes perspective when you're looking down through clouds at altitude at 8,500 feet. So I was now flying solo and I decided to take on work I needed to around childhood trauma and I started to discover my true sense of self. I worked at trying to be vulnerable and seeing the strength in that vulnerability. Since that breakup, I've had queer adventures, intrigues, lovers, partners in crime, holiday romances, hot dates. I've had really wonderful and special relationships, and I've been blessed. But a few years ago, I came out of an unhealthy, toxic relationship. I was devastated, exhausted, and my self-esteem was at rock bottom. Before the breakup, with maximum hormone injections, five times each day, I went through two contingent egg harvests, one successful, and I was about 40 at that time. I remember how heavy I felt and that my ovaries felt massive and that my ovaries would explode and eggs would just go everywhere. <laughs> I, <laughs> I felt my queer family aspirations had died with that relationship ending. So I went back to the fertility specialist that we'd been seeing. I went back in tears and told her what had happened. And she said, why don't you get pregnant? And then I laughed, an unusual amount of laughter, nervous laughter, <laughs> a lot. But she leaned in and said, Teresa, you are 42 years old. Are you sure? You really don't have much time to change your mind. And it was very cutting and I felt very lost. She referred me to her colleague, a meditation-based Buddhist mindfulness psychologist, a woman with amazing insight who had her own challenging IVF journey and in my first session, we agreed my major hurdle sat with self-discriminating perception, but I could just not imagine having a pregnant body or being a solo parent. I had challenges around my identity and also unable to find clothes already that fit my plus size figure, let alone having to think about maternity or paternity wear. <laughs> so, six weeks later, it's now 2017, I shocked myself and a few of my close friends and I decided to try and get pregnant. I had my first IVF consult, which was by phone from San Fran Pride. My chances were low, but I felt I would get pregnant straight away. There was no evidence suggesting I had fertility issues. My mother tells the story that she had five children in a sum total of 10 hours of labor. Whoa. That's, yeah, yeah, mom. <laughs> That's literally two hours of labor per baby, including myself. She believes she could get pregnant if someone just looked at her. <laughs> With more injections and procedures, three more of my eggs were retrieved, but unfortunately only two of those were viable and fertilised. So the night before the embryo transfer, a nurse rang and confirmed only one of the embryos had survived. Fuck. 
As I waited in the stirrups the next day in a mood-lit, very expensive IVF clinic with my friend DJ Sveta, who's over there, came with me today. We both looked up at the little blobs of cells on the screen and I imagined the tiny one embryo was my baby. I was hopeful and I was fucking anxious. Unfortunately, the odds were totally against me. The doctor carried out the procedure and I felt physically ill. She was having a few complications, trying to locate my difficult cervix. They were actually the words that she used mid-procedure to describe the complications she was having. Which, yeah. The next two weeks were stressful and I did a lot of meditation. I was at work, had just started a new job, literally the day after that procedure, and my phone rang. The nurse asked me how I felt and asked me to sit down. It was not ideal and I just held my breath. I was unbelievably lucky, pregnant first go at 42, my dream baby. Anton is now, is now nearly two years old. She's gorgeous, obviously. Um, fiercely independent, totally advanced. I know all parents say that, but it's actually true. <laughs> Someone here will vouch for that. She really is totally advanced. Um, and I wanted to say that I had 10 minutes sleep because unfortunately last night she had a very severe medical emergency and I had to rush her into RPA, which happens quite a lot. She has some, some issues. And I wanted to also point out, that it's not in my story, that obviously being a solo parent or any parent can be very challenging. It's also very rewarding. It's probably the best thing I've ever done, to be honest my best project yet. Um, whilst I experienced interesting stigma during my pregnancy, a story for another day, I'm really happy. Um, I work full-time, I solo parent full-time, we have a massive bio and queer chosen family, a lot of which are here tonight. I fly my plane, I have construction projects and personal creati creative projects, and sometimes when I'm not sleep deprived or working through my separation anxiety issues with her, just sometimes I go on dates. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast and consider buying a copy of the Queer Stories book. Hope to see you at one of the events soon.